0: and profound and provocative, Othello remains one of Shakespeare's most enduring and controversial plays. Now in a time of political uncertainty, rising populism and social fracture, it's been reinvented again. Welcome to The Othello Project. The Othello Project is an artistic response to the Shakespeare Tobacco Factory and English Touring Theatre's new production of Othello, directed by Richard Twyman, it's currently playing at London's Wilton Music Hall until the 3rd of June. This project is generously supported by Amal, an initiative of the Saeed Foundation. I'm your host, journalist Abdul Rahman Malik. I'm also a creative advisor to the production. Each episode explores some of the powerful themes, issues, and fault lines that Othello raises. In this episode, we go back into history. Othello, as portrayed in Richard's production, Is someone who constantly has to negotiate his identity. He is at once assimilated, on the surface level somewhat integrated, but privately holds his faith, his original faith, as his personal truth. This constant negotiation of who he is and how he is in the world is the core central tension of our production. In this episode, we speak to Matthew Carr, the author of Blood and faith, the purging of Muslim Spain, 1492 to 1614. In this harrowing account, Matthew describes the story of those Muslims who, after 1492, were forcibly converted to Christianity. They became known as the Moriscos. They developed their own language and tried to maintain their Muslim and Islamic culture. It's a story which has incredible resonances for us today. I started by asking Matthew to take us back, to take us back to 1492, the fall of Granada, and how the Muslims of the Iberian Peninsula were treated in the aftermath of what we now know as the reconquest of Spain. First of all, welcome Matthew. And it's, it's, it's wonderful to have you with us. I'm holding in my hand the, the I should say, the latest edition of your book, Blood and Faith, The Purging of Muslim Spain, 1492 to 1614.
1: And this is a book that's had a few lives, hasn't it? It has, yeah. I mean, um, I wrote it in um, 2009. It came out in, in the States, first of all. Then it came out here about uh, two years later. It came out in paperback in the States, but not in paperback here. And now suddenly... I was almost surprised myself, actually, when my publishers told me that they were going to do a new version of it, and I'm very pleased, of course. And I love the I love the design. Uh, the new the new design is just fantastic. I think uh,
0: the the design is 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 really compelling. The the picture on the fr- front of the book is is almost a scene that we've actually become used to seeing nowadays of of refugees on 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 the rocky road, surrounded by clearly men who are. Um,
1: decidedly hostile to them Mm -hmm. there's a schindler's list reference i think with the um the child with the red dress um because in the in the um the scene of the clearing of the ghetto in schindler's list there is a scene which um spielberg focuses on a child in a in a red and and so
0: we're, we're reminded that that what you're describing in this book is is um a great but also a forgotten tragedy
1: yeah, I, th- I think um, you can still say that it's a forgotten tragedy, despite the amount that's been written about it. That's partly because a lot of the things that have been written about it are very specialised historical studies that focus on different angles of the Morisco tragedy. A lot of that, there's some amazing material written by um, Spanish, French, and basically historians from all over the place, but it doesn't actually reach a general audience. And That was one reason why I wanted to write that book, because I thought this tragedy is so poignant, so relevant in so many ways, and, and so forgotten. Um, a lot of people think, for example, that Islamic Spain ended in 1492. That when, seems to be know, the,
0: the, the common idea that, that the Inquisition sort of, uh, sort of cuts like a, like a, like a broadsword and, and the re-Christianization of the Iberian Peninsula happens and all of a sudden Jews and Muslims disappear.
1: Yeah, well, that's right. I think because people confuse um, political military victory with actually um, the whole process of dealing with these basically unwanted minorities in a unified, reunified Christian state in 1492. And so first you have the the expulsion of the Jews. The expulsion of the Jews in 1492 was actually um, not strictly speaking an expulsion as such because the Jews were given a choice, convert to Christianity or leave. The Moriscos, on the other hand, who were the um, who were basically converted Muslims, converted mostly by force or some form of pressure to Christianity, were not given that um, choice in 1609. So you're dealing with like um, 100, and, about 120 years later, 120 years of history in which Christian Spain grappled with what it called the Morisco question and eventually decided to solve it by expelling the entire population. No choice then. The expulsion took place between 1609 1614, and basically by then everyone. had had to leave. That was what it was. Even children had to leave. Um, you know, young children and babies were actually expelled. There was a lot of agonised discussion in the Catholic Church about whether this was a Christian thing to do, and it was eventually decided that it was, or at least it was Christian enough um, to do. So you're dealing, you know, a hundred odd years of history had to happen between those two things. So that that hundred years of history is a fascinatingly
0: complex and difficult period of time to. Not just understand, but but to kind of piece together. And oh, yes. in your book, what you've done so wonderfully, um, and and in a way like a, like a master to- a storyteller should do, is that you've brought together and synthesized an incredible variety of, of of sources and stories, and put it together for us in a way that now the picture begins to make a lot more sense. How is that process of of, of finding these stories and piecing them together, it, it seems like a almost a work of um, a work worthy of a master detective as much as a master
1: storyteller. That's well, nice of you to say. I mean, I I approach that material with a, a certain amount of. Humility. I found it quite daunting, actually, when I first thought about doing a book on the Mariscos, because I was aware that lots of stuff had been written about them by a specialist and so on. I was aware that I was not a specialist historian. I was a writer who writes about history, which is a slightly different thing. So um, I t- my, my aim in that book was very straightforward, really, to go into that place, to enter that period of history, following the trails, the many different trails left by different historians with different kinds of um, focuses, different um, ideological emphases, and bring it back to a contemporary audience. That was really my aim, really. And obviously, um, you can get involved when you start looking at the whole field of Morisco studies. There are some very complex things written that actually you have to be quite careful about how you're going to bring them to an audience. So doing it through the vehicle of stories... Um, as much as you can, as much as you can find individual stories in that period. A lot of stories appear, for example, in partially, in a fragmented way, in Inquisition um, documents, Um, you know, and and they tell these pictures, they paint out something of the picture, but really there's a lot of stuff that just isn't known, you know. What amazed me when I was studying this period was how well some of these historians have done, dealing with something that happened 400 years ago, a period that Spain once regarded with complete uh, shame really the whole period of islamic um, the whole islamic period before um the final purging as i put it um you know they, they spain's rulers for years um wanted to wipe out every single trace of islam in spain so there wasn't a wealth of material around um, and a lot of historians rely on things like inquisition um, interrogation documents and so on to reveal a great deal but there's not that much written by moriscos themselves telling their own story a lot of what is said was said about them um, by their enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, so putting their story together is very, very tricky. And, and the Moriscos, these
0: Muslims who were forcibly converted to Christianity and continued to live in Spain until the final uh, expulsion, um, they developed their own language, didn't they? Their own sort of lingua franca um, be- between themselves.
1: They, did, they developed a language called um, aljamiado, Um, Which was um, basically uh, it was Castilian, Portuguese, or Catalan, but written in an Arabic script. Okay, Um, and still not. There's still a lot of debate amongst historians why they did this. Um, because um, some people say that it was intended to conceal certain conversations and truths that they were having kind of underground, the the underground Morisco world, if you like. That theory isn't really borne out by the fact that the texts that have been revealed don't really... They're often quite mundane. They'll often deal with, like, maybe some fragments of the Quran, certain kind of religious things, hadith and so on, or simply um, folkloric things about um, healing and medicine. So, you know, the search for, say, an uh, undiscovered Morisco masterpiece or kind of um, sort of resistance texts, um, that hasn't really um, appeared. So an- another explanation which makes more sense to me is that they um, Mariscos wrote in that language, using Arabic as a form of cultural resistance in itself, just by the fact of choosing Arabic that they did that. When I think about my, I guess,
0: my own personal encounter with what we maybe in a cliched way talk about as Muslim Spain or Islamic Spain. Uh, I actually go back to my childhood. My, my father in, in 1969 was a student here in the United Kingdom and his, he was an amateur photographer. And one of his great dreams was to photograph the Court of the Lions at the Alhambra. And there he ventured into Franco Spain, a young Muslim man from Pakistan studying in the United kingdom and he photographed the court of lions in, in, in franco spain and, and The experience he had there was fascinating because he was treated with a great deal of suspicion, picked up by the secret police and questioned as to why, why he was why he was there altogether and and so in our house, we kind of grew up with this sense that that to preserve and to and to know about Muslim Spain was really important for our identity as a Muslim minority growing up in growing up in Canada. It was it was at once a cautionary tale, but also uh, a way that connected us to Europe and and to the West um, in uh, in general. And I think in more recent years, there's been a kind of a great celebration of what. Um, the societies of Cordoba and, 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 and Granada and Seville meant where people of different faiths um, came came together. But it's, it was a lot more complicated than that, wasn't it? It was, it was on the ground. There was a lot going on politically, but also socially and culturally. And I guess understanding that sets us up to understand better what happened
1: in 1492 and beyond. Mm. It was a very, very complicated period of history, and the way that p- different people have remembered it, um, the way you've just described it, uh, shows those kind of complexities, really. I mean, on one hand, um, there's been a certain amount of romanticism about the whole period of Al-Andalus that began in 7- 711 and lasted, really, politically until 1492 with the fall of the Emirate of Granada. Uh, a tendency to portray it as a kind of lost utopia of kind of multicultural coexistence and so on. The um, 20th-century historian, Américo Castro, Um, used the term convivencia, living together, to describe what he said was the ideal of Al-Andalus, in which all three faiths managed to kind of um, work out a kind of modest vivendi, despite um, a lot of pressures not to do that from within their own faiths. And there's some truth in that. There's some truth in it... um, there's some truth in it on a kind of like existential, um, everyday life level in the way that the different groups um, related to each other. But the thing is, you know, by imposing concepts like modern concepts like tolerance, multiculturalism and so on, onto a very different period of history, you run the risk of coming into very, very misleading conclusions. You, end up, you can end up telling yourself that, in fact, Christian and Muslim r- um, rulers actually happily coexisted. Well, it was, sometimes they did, and a lot of time they didn't. And sometimes they would coexist in various ways and fight each other at the same time. And use each other to kind of like um, define each other's particular identity. Sometimes um, you would have, for example, Muslim soldiers fighting for Christian rulers. You would have Christian soldiers like El Cid. The famous El Cid was a mercenary for some of his career. So sometimes he, he, was, he was the guy who was associated with the great, you know, anti-Moorish spanish warrior right but he also fought as a mercenary for various muslim um rulers at the time so you know i think you have to look at the period and say yes there were surprising um examples of tolerance and coexistence given the general context of the time the era of the crusades the general hostility um military hostility military conflict between islam and christendom at the time um so and so and you know you have other contradictions for, like the cultural things for example um when a lot of Christians travelers who went to Iberia as late as the thirteenth and fourteenth century when they visited Spanish Christian courts at that time, basically Islam had already been driven southwards by the fourteenth century. Um, there was really only the emirate of granada, um, so Christian power was dominant in Spain and yet in a lot of Christian courts, these travelers were shocked by the fact that the women would dress like Moor, like Moorish women, and there was a kind of like there was a lot of um, Moorish music was very popular, clothing was very popular, ways of sitting, ways of eating, food. And, um, you know, some of these Christian travellers didn't understand this. They, they thought that these people were not proper Christians, but, but and after, that never uh, entirely disappeared. Yeah, but after hundreds of years, that had become the, the culture of the place. Absolutely, it had, in some parts, of course. It wasn't the same, that's another thing, it's not the same everywhere, it depends. Like, for example... Um, you know, um, at least 200 years before 1492, you had um, Moors living in Castile who basically were indistinguishable from Christian Castilians. They were assimilated, fully assimilated, whereas you had other parts, like in Valencia and particularly in Granada, which was the most kind of Arabized part. You know, it was only conquered in 1492, where the differences are really clear in the way people looked, in the language they used. They'd be speaking Arabic, for example, in the, in Valencia. They'd be speaking Arabic in Granada, but in Castile they wouldn't be. Um, the Moors at that time would be speaking Spanish you know and, and the only thing is that they did they were allowed to have mosques they were allowed to worship openly once again when some European um, travellers went to Spain and saw this they used to talk about white Moors they saw they talked about um, right. why are there so many white Moors in Spain and um, you know some, they were partly fascinated by it the travellers who went to Spain say in the late 15th and early 16th century they were fascinated by what they saw as an exotic outpost and they were also shocked you know, like, um, there was a, one traveler who, uh, I think it was a German traveler, Hieronymus Munzer, who went to Granada at the turn of the 15th century. And he's, he, was, he's, he said there were a, nearly 100 mosques there. And he said there were people worshipping openly as Moors everywhere. And he was obviously appalled by this, and yet strangely fascinated by it as well, you know. You are listening to The Othello Project, created by English
0: Touring Theatre, with support from Amal, a project of the Said Foundation. Amal provides opportunities for people in Britain, regardless of their faith or beliefs, to come together and explore the rich diversity of Muslim cultures and arts. To find out more about the work of Amal, visit That's amal.org.uk. That's a m a l dot org dot u k. Now back to the podcast. This whole this this whole theme of 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 cultural encounter integration, assimilation, um, similarity and difference is a constant theme in, in, in your book. And because it's really at the heart of the story, isn't it? Because after 1492, um, something really kind of quite cataclysmic happens, which is that an entire people are forced to contend with who they are and to exist in different ways, um, in the place that they were not only born, but in a place that for centuries and centuries, their families have called home, the only home they know. And I think it would be interesting to, for, for you to help us trace a little bit what happens after the fall of Granada, and, and how we begin to understand the rise of the Moriscos as a people and as a community.
1: Sure. I think um, to answer that question you'd have to go a little bit further back first of all to around 1398 and that was the time when this huge pogrom broke out anti- jewish pogrom spread across the whole of Spain, in which hundreds of Jews, thousands of Jews were actually massacred um, in a period of, over a period of a few months, and basically this set in motion um, crystallized these very powerful chauvinistic forces towards um, religious homogenization in Spain that continued throughout the 15th century that became increasingly obsessed with notions like purity of blood. Um, You know, you had to to get certain offices within the church and so on. You had to actually show that your blood was pure, i.e. you had no admixture of Jews and Moor. During the 15th century, um, this is before 1492, the focus was mostly on Jews and also Jews who were considered to be backsliding. Because um, they found themselves in a situation as a result of those um, pogroms in which some Jews were converted by force, literally at the point of a sword sometimes, and others were not. And so the 1492 choice given to the Jews is supposed to resolve that problem. The idea was, look, how can we expect these Jews to become Christians if um, we actually have Jews openly worshipping as Jews in Spain? So we'll say to those people who have not been converted, convert or leave. So then, once that, once that was done, solved, so to speak, the, the problem turns towards the Moors and the Moriscos. But the problem was with the Moors, was that the Moors were very, played a, a, were very economically important across Spain in, in different ways, as labourers in different kinds of jobs, as, um, almost as serfs in Valencia um, and Aragon. And the, for the big landowners of Aragon and, and Valencia, um, Moors worked on their estate. Without that workforce their states would collapse. So they were actually quite tolerant, even if their tolerance was infused with a strong element of self-interest. So for for the Catholic rulers of a unified Spain determined to impose a single Christian identity on the whole of Spain, this was the problem. How do you deal with this without actually harming your own interests? So for the next 100 years, various rulers struggled with this issue. Um, And in the the end of the 15th century, this process of forced conversion began in which... um, all Moors, basically in different phases, were converted to Christian to Christianity. So you could say by around um, by around 1520, 1525, ostensibly there were no more Muslims in Spain. Everybody was a Christian, and these converted Moors became known as Moriscos, which meant um, is a kind of pejorative word which meant little Moor. Uh, it was an insult for the most part. But then you had the question: Okay, you've made these people, you've converted them. Um, by various forms of duress and pressure, but how do you know they really are Christians? and so over the next hundred years, um, more or less, you had this constant morisco um, uh, problem as it was called la question morisca was tossed about at the top of states. You know, it sounds how a lot do like, you deal with it? It sounds a lot like the language being used in Europe
0: today around the Muslim problem. I, you know it, it, even the way the way you framed it sounds so familiar from from certainly the alt-right and the far-right in Europe who, who will often frame it in, in the exact same way. Um, these are citizens, yet they're Muslims. And so we have a Muslim problem because we have a problem of assimilation. We have a problem of integration. We have a problem because we see these people as not just other but as but as dangerous to us. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I think that the, I think there are certain parallels. Like they can't be overstated, of course, because you're dealing with different politi- um, different historical periods. I mean, for example, one simple thing: back then, the concept of citizen did not exist. You were a subject. Of course. Nevertheless, and this was a, this was a, another thing that has a certain resonance today. Um, Spanish rulers could not um, they could not understand. Why they they constantly distrusted their Morisco subjects and thought that they were colluding with Muslim rulers or Muslim corsairs, pirates, and so on, on the other in North Africa, and so the Inquisition would argue, for example, if you saw such and such a Morisco who was actually backsliding, as they put it, and was secretly. Um, Worshipping as a Muslim, they automatically assume that that person would also be in league with Spain's enemies, with the Ottomans, with North African Bays and Algiers, and so on. And the fact is, the two things were not necessarily connected. You could actually be culturally and religiously Morisco without actually having any subversive intentions towards um, the Spanish king. But the, the Inquisition would constantly say things like, "Ah, these people dream of kind of restoring Islam to Spain. That's what all they think about. They're trying to facilitate a Turkish invasion, and so." On and so forth. So the Mariscos were defined as culturally alien, religiously alien, not just alien, but an abomination in a Christian territory, and also as a security threat. So you mix all these things together, you have a very toxic um, brew indeed. And did the Inquisition councils, because of course the Inquisition um, was incredibly
0: organized, wasn't it? They kept records, they had courts, they had councils, they had rulings that, that came out. How long did that Inquisition Council
1: last during this period? Did it last right throughout the entire period? It right through. It's also important to to remember that one of the ways in which um, Spain's rulers tried to get to grips with the Morisco problem there was a kind of there was more than one school of thought. But if you if you want to break it down very in a very straightforward way, the two schools of thought were repression, use repression to make these Moriscos become good and faithful Christians. That was the term, good and faithful Christians. The other was give them time. Give them time, and they will eventually become. Especially if you treat them with love and benevolence. Right. So there was that view as well. So you know, one has to remember that Spain was not some kind of monolithic place. Um, you know, um, run and populated entirely by bigots. There were different schools of thought. They're not the schools of thought we would have now. We have a much more broader range of possibilities. But there were possibilities, and um, the trouble was, um, Spain never really resolved itself one way or another. It would go through a period in which the Moriscos were left alone. So they would be left alone in their villages and towns in Valencia, and some, type, for example, in Valencia or some other part of Spain. And then you would find a situation in which no priest went anywhere near them. And um, so these Moriscos had no idea what was even expected of them. Some of them were actually prepared to become Christians. They just didn't know what it meant to be a Christian, because no one told them. And another thing was that some of the worst priests in Spain used to be sent to the kind of uh, tierras moriscos, the morisco lands, um, and they despised them quite often. They often regard it as a bad parish to be dumped in, a parish full of moriscos. And so you'd have these bitter, acrimonious relationships in which the priests hated the congregants and the congregants hated the priest. The priest would sometimes fleece his morisco parishioners, make them pay for things, um, accuse them of various religious crimes just to make a bit of money, call in the Inquisition if that was necessary, so you had this very incompetent approach to the whole concept of, in, of assimilation. Some periods of fierce repression, followed by periods in which nothing at all happened. So by the end of the century, well, the crucial event was the um, rebellion in Granada in 1568, oh, 71. Can tell us about that. Um, that. Basically, by this time, um, another thing worth remembering is, is that um, this took place at a time when Spain was fighting the Ottoman Turks... In the Mediterranean, fighting for supremacy in the Mediterranean in various ways, and felt under threat uh, when the Habsburgs, because we were talking about the Habsburg rulers of Spain, also felt under threat from the Ottomans in in what is now Austria. So um, that's the kind of background of hostility shaped what happened in Spain, because Spain's rulers became increasingly impatient at the lack of progress. And so, in 1568, Philip II basically ordered all Moriscos in Granada. This was the most um, kind of Islamified, Arabized part of Morisco um, Spain, ordered all of them to stop doing anything that defined them as Moriscos. They, lo- they were not allowed to speak Arabic. They had to destroy their public baths. They had to destroy all written records written in Arabic. So basically, you had businessmen whose records were written in Arabic and were told to destroy them within a year. You had old people who were told to stop speaking Arabic within a year. Um, so these decrees... So A lot of Christians in Granada said, if you do this, there will be disaster. That you you will incite rebellion and, and, and that is what happened It's
0: important to uh, remind ourselves that at this point, ostensibly they're Christian. That's right. Yeah. So I mean, at, at, at least in 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 name or in externality, yeah, they,
1: they are Christian. They were Christian, but the Christians of Granada, as it as as happened in some other parts of Spain, the Moriscos of Granada, sorry, came to an arrangement with Philip's um, Philip II's father, in which they paid a certain amount of money for Christians to give them time, but in that time not much happened. Um, and the Christian, you had this period of Christian colonization of Granada, because before 1492, there had not been Christians, not many anyway, living in Granada. After 1492, lots of Christians moved there. And they regarded, um, when they saw these moriscos wandering around, women wearing the al-malafa, which is the equivalent of the niqab, they they were shocked and disgusted by this, and they reported it. and And they were often keen to take Uh, get possession of Morisco land as well. So there was that going on as well, a face-to-face process of colonization taking place at the same time, which reminds, you can remind people in some ways of um, Algeria, for example, in the 19th century, not entirely dissimilar dynamic. So basically the king lost patience in 1568 and he incited, these decrees, the pragmatica of Philip II, uh, the the Moriscos of Granada rose up in revolt it was a vicious war one of one of the worst civil wars spains ever had actually in terms of the ferocity because a lot of the Moriscos um, carried out all kinds of massacres and atrocities at the beginning, taking revenge on the priests who'd been tormenting them, and so on and so forth. Then the violence was thrown back against them. This lasted about two years, and Philip II decided after that to expel the entire population of Granada and deport them in different parts of Spain. The idea was, if you deport them in different small groups around Spain, their Morisco identity will be dissolved into the kind of... You had to do it in small groups. So that was, in a way, a kind of precursor for what took place um, in 1609, so after that, the whole question, the, the Morisco problem, became more urgent than it had been before, because um, basically, at the head of state, you had people talking about what we're going to do now to prevent another Granada. Um, there was talk about massacring the entire population. That was that was seriously discussed at various meetings, putting them all in ships, all Moriscos in ships, taking them out to sea and just sinking the ships. That was one. Putting them in reservations. Was another and expulsion, um, and eventually expulsion was settled upon as the kind of um, the most humane, the most humane and the most Christian way of doing it. It's it it's
0: fascinating to me, particularly in relation to our work with this production of Othello, uh, directed by Richard Twyman and, and uh, hosted here at English Touring Theatre, because. In this particular production, we, we really focus on the character of Othello as someone who in many ways is a Morisco, is someone who, by conviction, maintains his Islam and maintains his Muslim faith and certainly his Muslim identity. But in the world, he acts like a Christian. And there is this constant tension uh, that 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 plays itself out in Othello's actions and behaviors, privately and publicly, and he's constantly having to shift his perspective, his language, his approach to the people around him, depending on their relationship to to either his private or public identity. And I imagine that must have been a constant daily experience for for the for the morisco to Absolutely. be to be negotiating what's going on in their family or in the home and then what's going on in 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 the world in the world outside of that and i guess over time i imagine there was some kind of desperation uh, because over time you begin to lose the thing that you had
1: yeah, I think that's absolutely yeah. right. I mean, this whole question of, um, one, of the, one of the problems was that because um, Spain essentially set out to assimilate a minority that, that it despised and didn't actually want to be there and didn't respect and actually feared as well, because, it, because those were the kind of emotions that went into the whole assimilationist drive, they were then faced with a situation, you know, what are you going to do? If you're, on one hand, you're ordering people to become like you, so to speak, and to remove any sign of difference, either in faith or in culture. At the same time, having done that by force, you never really believe in their sincerity. And um, so, you know, what often happened, you would get situations where Mariscos essentially ended up with no identity whatsoever. They would be, for example, in some remote parish in Valencia, told that they were Christians. Then no priest would ever go there. They had no contacts or very few contacts with kind of um, religious authorities in the Islamic world. So they actually didn't know where to get their Christianity from or where they'd get their Islam from. And some alternated between both faiths. Some kind of juggled both. Um, Some had almost nothing. Um, And they were in this kind of really tragic situation which they could not carve out a viable identity. And all the time, one word out of place in the wrong amongst the wrong people could any, you could put you in front of an inquisitorial tribunal i mean one guy it's one of many incidents like this was heard saying muhammad because um because somebody hadn't paid him his all his money so he used it as a curse word he was heard saying that somebody else said may muhammad close my eyes because he was tired just let it out the kind of thing you, you might say in daily life someone heard him reporting to the inquisition so he's on trial for that Um, and so on so you know you you might be all right if you were in your morisco area where you didn't come into contact with christians then you might you know you might be able to kind of construct some form of identity that would work for the community you were in but if you ever came into contact with christians for example and and, um or the inquisition it could all go pear-shaped very very quickly you know and uh you might end up just being fined or you might end up being executed uh, and so on so sometimes this was just done by accident and other times people were actually defiantly um, avowing their Muslim identity. That, that that happened too. There were some people who you see inquisition documents in which people would say such and such a person has said she is a Moor and is proud to be a Moor and has no problem dying as a Moor. Um, so some people would be that outspoken and that defiant. Others, it was just a question of sort of negotiating your way through the the constant pressures of being in Spain. At that and, time. and just to clarify, if you were
0: found guilty by an in- Inquisitorial tribunal or
1: court was death the punishment? Not always. No, there was a whole spectrum of punishments. You could repent for one thing. The 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 Inquisition was not always like it appears to be in Edgar Allan Poe stories. I um, obviously, by any, by most contemporary standards, it was a cruel, harsh institution. It didn't regard itself like that, though. Of course. Um, it regarded itself as the defender of, of Christianity against its many enemies, and particularly its internal enemies, the enemies that were inside the body of Christian society. You know, first it was the Jews, and then it was Moriscos. So um, there was a spectrum of punishments. It depended on what your offense was. You could you could, um, you could be given a chance to repent, and if you did that, you'd be maybe just get a fine or wear, or wear this um, garment known as a San Benito, this kind of sh- uh, tunic of shame and so on, and be paraded in an out of faith. But on the other hand, if you slip back again, then you, would be, you may well find yourself in the firing line. And towards the end of the 16th century, as Spain moved further and further away from the idea of benevolently encouraging Moriscos to become Christians and using force, the Inquisition became harsher and harsher and more and more kind of in the forefront of the kind of um, campaign against the Moriscos. The other thing was the Inquisition needed money, and fining people was one way of getting it. It was as simple as that sometimes. In some areas, the Inquisition needed money to finance itself, so it had to find enemies, and preferably enemies who you could find. Um, and they would confiscate their property, com- confiscate their furniture, sell it, and that would be used to help the Inquisition out. There's there's a there's
0: an interesting passage um, in, in the chapter called the Granada pragmatic which oh. which i you just you just referred to and um uh there's a there's a speech i guess from from uh from a young arab man um and he uh he sort of is 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 speaking to i guess moriscos that are that are assembled before him and and um he says the following among the christians we are treated as moors and despised as moors while our own Moorish brethren treat us not as Moors, but as renegades to the Christians, and neither help nor trust us, we are excluded from all that makes life good, and we are not even allowed to defend ourselves. They forbid us to speak our own language, but we do not understand. their Castilian. In one language are we to exchange thoughts, ask for things, give things. Without language, men cannot treat with other human beings not even animals are forbidden to understand human voices who is in the position to say that the man who speaks castilian cannot hold the law of the prophet or that the man who speaks arabic cannot hold to the law of jesus i mean it's it's that's a very powerful <laughs> eloquent passage that is isn't it it is absolutely um heartrending to be yeah. honest um and and full of a a, a deep pain and and I mean, you you referred to it earlier. This pain of rejection, and I, I'm interested there in, in to who are the Moorish brethren uh, who who this particular individual is, is is referring to? Because obviously, we can understand how he's rejected by yeah. the Christian authorities and society around him. But who are his who are his Moorish brethren who are who are rejecting him?
1: There would have been um, he would have been referring perhaps to some marginal contacts that he may have had with. Um, Muslims, imams from North Africa, or he may have heard of. Um, he would have had very few opportunities to actually meet those people. Um, it, that's not all. What he describes isn't always true, actually. I mean, uh, some. It took a while for um, the re- religious authorities in North Africa to understand what was taking place in Spain. Like, for example, especially in the early part of the um, uh, 15th century, shortly after the forced conversions of the Moors when they became Moriscos. There was a reluctance to believe that they'd force had been used, okay. so some people thought they'd actually had converted to Christianity and therefore they were renegades. So they weren't. It was, a, but after a while, it became clear. It sort of percolated through what was taking place because you ha, you did have Moriscos who escaped from Spain, even though they weren't allowed to, and went to North Africa. Um, there was one fatwa issued um, from a North African, um, I think in Morocco, it was, a scholar who said gave advice on what Moriscos should do in the situation they're in, in the predicament in which they found themselves. He said, for example, if you're forced to say Christian prayers, reject them in your mind. Mm. But you see, imagine what that looks like. It looks like nothing. There's no way of telling if that person was really rejecting things in their mind. Of course, the Inquisition thought the same thing. That's what they thought was happening, that people were rejecting things in their mind. So the Moriscos are in a very invidious situation in which they're not necessarily trusted by their own co-religionist Um, For the same reasons that the Inquisition is persecuting them because they're supposedly have secret thoughts and because there's no way of telling when you see somebody go to mass Is that person a sincere Christian or someone pretending to be a Christian to to survive? Is that person practicing taquilla or are they not you can't tell? uh, Unless you speak to that person and of course those opportunities for conversations were very limited in Spain Did did some Moriscos run? Did
0: some Morisco's make a run for it and say, "Say we're, we're out of here, we're, we're, we're heading to
1: the Maghreb, or we're heading to the lands of the Ottomans? Or- they did, they did, but, they, but the penalty was death for trying. That was another of the contradictions of uh, Spanish assimilation. You had to stay. Um, you had to stay and become a good and faithful Christian. But we don't believe you've become a good and faithful Christian. But if you really don't like it here, you can't leave, because that proves you're not a good and faithful Christian. And also... Spain was very worried that if you sent Moriscos out of Spain, they would actually, become, they would actually join the um, Ottoman Turks or join the Corsairs um, in Algeria, which they did do, actually. I mean, um, there was a re- fair amount of Morisco Corsairs who basically took revenge on Spain by doing just that, by going to somewhere like Algiers or, tu- or Tunis and returning in a Corsair ship and attacking Spain. Those numbers actually grew, of course, after the expulsion because it was nowhere did, else for them did to go the rest through. of
0: the christian world and understanding that you know we're at the sort of the cusp of, of of the protestant revolution and there's there's i mean europe is itself so divided along religious lines is there a broad acceptance of what was going on in spain i mean did the, did the rest of europe or the rest of the christian majority empires see this as um thoroughly acceptable way of dealing with your Muslim or Morisco problem?
1: Well, I think that's a very interesting question. It also touches on um, the period in which Shakespeare was writing his play, of course. Um, One of the interesting things about that period is that for Lutheran, Protestant Europe... Um, when they came into kind of uh, when they were fighting Spain which they were doing a lot because don't forget Spain was presenting itself at that time especially in the second half of the 15th century as the kind of uh, the sword of of Catholicism fighting um, schism fighting schismatics Um, you know dealing with Lutherans was as significant as dealing with Moors or Jews for them But um, in order to justify their position as being the sword of Christendom, they had to be pure and seen to be pure. So their Protestant enemies were very well aware of this. So in in, um, some of the kind of anti-Spanish propaganda tracts that were written by Protestant writers, English, Dutch, uh, mostly, they would say that Spain is still a country of Jews and Moors. And how can that country be a really Christian country? Fascinating. So, you know, on one hand, uh, they had no problem. I mean, given that, um, you know, Protestant rulers at the time were just as capable of persecuting religious minorities as anyone else. You look at what happened in the, in the French Wars of Religion; um, absolute savage persecution taking place by both sides in those wars. So, the, the question of persecution was not a problem. So, yeah, they would they would um, they would not be critical of the persecution of the Moriscos, but they would argue that it's not actually happening because Spain is fatally corrupted by its Moorish and Jewish past, and therefore can never be the pure Christian country and the leading country of, uh, of Christendom that it wants to be. So and Spain, Spanish rulers were actually often uncomfortably conscious of this. They didn't like being presented as a country of Jews and Moors, and that in some ways probably hardened their own position towards the Moriscos inside Spain. It was like they were trying to prove to the outside world, yes, we are. We are not Jewish or Moorish because we've expelled the all. Um, you know crudely put, that was a kind of dynamic that some of them were, were locked into so so in in
0: sixteen o nine when the expulsion the formal expulsion began mm-hmm. th- that was that was the claim I guess the the Spanish Empire could make at that point is that we have we 've now begun the process or we are now fully cleansing ourselves of this absolutely that 's exactly how they audience. presented it and there was
1: a, another cr- deep irony really in the sense that it wasn 't well received by christian europe the pope condemned it the pope the pope because uh, the, the, the thing is i've often people I, people don't necessarily like me doing this but i can't help myself i've often thought of philip iii as being um like george bush jr his relationship to his dad in the sense that philip ii was the kind of harsh strong ruler the man who ruled empires from his desk you know the the the, the, the fighting christian ruler who fought from his desk but nevertheless um, set off war after war against um, whoever he needed to fight on behalf of, um, of, of Catholicism. Philip III had the reputation of being the laziest king in Spanish history. He was the one who actually did what his father had already decided to do in 1582. Philip II agreed on expulsion in principle but did nothing about it. But he was famously hesitant ruler anyway, and he always took years to decide anything. But Philip III, almost, almost uh, overnight... Um, with his councillor the Duke of Lerma decided let's do this they had a brief period in which Spain wasn't fighting wars for once there was they just signed uh, a truce with the Dutch rebels so it was very quickly decided and implemented with astonishing speed and efficiency because Spain wasn't always efficient at that period Um, but yet within a few months they'd organized the entire machinery for expulsion getting ships from all over Europe to do it And, and Philip expected to be praised for this he was, by his, kind of own, by his hagiographers and the lobbyists who'd been arguing for expulsion inside Spain. But outside it, um, the Pope expressed his shock at the fact that the king had, ex- had expelled kids. He said, how can those kids be sinners or heretics when they haven't, you know, haven't even b- been baptized, some of them? You know, they're infants. And so Philip III was forced into a situation in which he had to defend himself to the Pope and say, he said, my intention was to remove every single morisco to the last morisco. That was the phrase he kept using again and again, to the last morisco, every single one. Um, And he said, to do that, um, I had to be harsh. And other um, Spanish, uh, other European statesmen, English statesmen, the the English ambassador to Spain was really critical of it. People noticed that the, the amount of Corsair attacks on Spain increased after the expulsion, when they were supposed to decrease. Because, you know, the, the supposed participation en masse of Moriscos with the Corsairs is one of the justifications of the security threat, once again. We have to expel them because they're attacking us. But the actual number of attacks was supposed to go down, but they actually went up afterwards. So, you know... There was also local knowledge. Yeah, <laughs> well, exactly, of course they did. Yeah, they had local knowledge. And they were able to guide Corsairs right into the neighbourhoods where they used to live. And, 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 and even further inland. It was a... Serious threat, you know, the expression um, no hay moros en la costa, which they still use in Spain, a, which is the equivalent of um, the coast is clear, is basically there are no moors on the coast. That goes back to that period in which the arrival of a ship suddenly on the Spanish coast could mean disaster for any Christian community. Of course, Christians were also taking slaves as well. It, didn't, it wasn't a one-way thing, but that was, the kind of, that was going on in the Mediterranean throughout that period. So, yeah, no, Philip So Philip III, was, he was shocked by this. And one thing that really shocked him um, was the fact his own priests by that time were saying, we shouldn't be expelling um, these people because they actually are good and faithful Christians. And this was the thing. You're talking um, about 120 years after 1492. By this time, a lot of changes had taken place. You know, you're talking about the sons and daughters, grandchildren of people who were originally converted. And some of them did become... Um, good and faithful Christians. But now you move towards the kind of racial ethnic dimension of, of the whole um, expulsion. It wasn't just a question of beliefs people had in their head. To the Spanish rulers, it was something you carried in your blood. And that's why they were so keen to expel children. They saw children, they called them bad seeds, the children. They argued that if you leave these kids in Spain, that they will grow into be moors. Because, and they'll take revenge on us because it's in their blood. So when you're talking about blood, you're not talking about kind of scientific skin color racism, the kind we saw in the 18th, 19th centuries. You're talking about an early manifestation of racism in which you kind of have this overlap of ideology, blood, and faith. Hence well, the title. Well, I mean, if we, if we look at Othello through that lens,
0: and if, and if these were ideas that potentially Shakespeare... Was was sort of absorbing in terms of the cultural milieu that he was in, and the news from Spain, and the notion of the Moor, and and the the relationship with Elizabethan England that's now been when well documented by people like Jerry Broughton with the Islamic world. Then this starts all to make sense about the language that Shakespeare uses—the language not only of of religious otherness and suspicion, but also of racial otherness and 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 color—and and, and I think in, in many ways. We, who kind of are engaged in trying to interpret and understand and, and and play with texts like this, this historical background that you've provided actually provides some of the missing links in our own understanding of of how we're supposed to view a character like Othello Absolutely. within the context of, of the time that he's in, within the context of the play.
1: Well, when he murders Desdemona and he uses the sword of Spain to kill himself... Um, he is in a way conforming to a certain image of what of the Moor at that period. Because uh, it's probably worth mentioning that the image of the Moor in Protestant anti-Spanish propaganda essentially was associated with cruelty, barbarism, and savagery. There was no mention of things like the Cordoba Library, um, which at its high point had more books than the whole of Christendom. You know, none of that. That's a, that, that's the side of, of, of Moorish Spain that has been discovered more recently, and it's actually celebrated by um, kind of. Foreign travellers going to Spain in the nineteenth century, but at the time Shakespeare was writing, if you, if you were saying to Spain you were a country of Moors and Jews, you were not only saying you were a country of heretics; therefore, you can't really be a, the Christian country you say you are. You're also savage and cruel, and the, in fact, the reason you're savage and cruel is because you were Moorish. That's how that's that was a, a, a constant refrain in some of the kind of the, the, the notion sav- of the Spanish black legend. You yeah, know, the savagery is encoded. As you said, in yeah, your blood, the in bad the blood. seed is, in is, the blood, is exactly. always uh, reappearing. Yeah. So if you're dealing with a kind of, um, you're dealing with a, a 1620 Spain that was actually regarded itself as a kind of like apex of civilization, to be accused of this kind of thing by your enemies, like the Duke of Orange, who you were fighting in the Netherlands, is deeply shameful and embarrassing. And given that, you know, the propaganda wars of those wars were important, just as they are now... Um, they, you know, Spain was quite keen to kind of um, refute any suggestion of this. A, they, they didn't like being accused of so called Spanish cruelty, and they liked even less the fact that Spanish cruelty was somehow connected to Moorish cruelty. You, um, you're probably familiar with the cliche Africa begins at the Pyrenees, yes, which still kicks around even now. It does, yeah. Well, I mean, that goes back to that period, really the fact that the idea that Moorish Spain was African, um, um, that uh, the reason the main reason why Africa begins at the Pyrenees isn't just because the um, topography and the terrain changes, it's because the culture changes. And, you know, you cross the Pyrenees, you enter this area that is African. And why do, where does that come from, all that way of thinking about Spain? It comes from the, the eight centuries of Al-Andalus and the whole idea that Moorishness was also African. So you have a kind of um, recipe there, uh, context in which all kinds of different strands can overlap with each other, race, religion, faith, blood to produce what was essentially, to my mind, a historical crime of immense proportion Proportions and also a precursor of many modern crimes, like it—the whole concept of ethnic cleansing and so on. I want to come back to that as we
0: as, as we conclude. But there's one other thing I wanted to pick up with you before we started recording. You had actually made mention of a really interesting Morisco text, which in a way connected this story to the story of to the story of Venice. And 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 I guess this text would have been written. Um, I guess in the lead up to 1609 and the expulsion, or may- maybe during that period, and it was it was you described it as kind of a guidebook for a Morisco who was leaving Spain and how they would conduct themselves on their way to safety or freedom. Mm-hmm. I- I'd love for you to describe that that
1: book for us and, and how Venice plays into that narrative. Sure. No, yeah, I mean I think. Um, there's probably one point I should make which actually links into this, which is very important to consider when you're thinking about the expulsion Is the, the expulsion did not succeed on its own terms. Um, from what The general figure is that historians think that around between 300,000 and 350,000 people were expelled from Spain, which is near about a third of the population at the time, which is a lot of people. Um, for the time, it's enormous. However, um, there were many people who weren't expelled and there were many people who came back and stayed and just sort of melted in to the surrounding social landscape. And after that, that's one of the reasons the expulsion lasted as long as it did. It was supposed to take place almost instantaneously, phased, but quickly. And one of the reasons why it lasted nearly five years was the sheer difficulty of identifying who was a Morisco, finding them, find, looking at parish records and so on, and seeing who had once been a Morisco, or who had a grandfather who had been a Morisco, and then saying, OK, we can expel this one. And then expelling the ones who came back not just once, but sometimes two or three times because they kept coming back. And so particularly in the second phase of the expulsion um, in, from Castile in 1610, um, a lot of people went through France and Italy. And so somebody during that period wrote a book called, "It was the title has generally been something like A Guide for the Road. And it was basically to help Moriscos in trouble how to negotiate what was quite often a hostile Christian um, social landscape in which you could be held in suspicion not only in Spain but outside Spain. Um, Spanish, the French king Henry IV did allow Moriscos to pass through French territory and to settle in certain parts of it, but under certain conditions. He wasn't happy about it. But Henry IV was one of the most tolerant of French kings and he managed to find room, at least sometimes, until he was his own assassination. Um, so uh the Moriscos would basically say in this book, you have to kind of hide everything when you're in these Christian territories. Um, just keep pretend to be for example a christian pilgrim visiting christian sites don't say you're a morisco fleeing spain that will automatically make you an object of suspicion pretend to be a christian going to collect debts in some business deal only when you get to venice can you let your guard down that's what this text said because there you basically said there it didn't put it in these terms but it presented venice as a place where east met west where christians mingled openly. With Muslims without any attempt to disguise. So, this was at the end, of, this was the beginning of the 17th century when this was said. And I remember being quite struck by that myself, you know, because um, I hadn't thought of Venice in those terms, you know, at that period. But this is how it describes it anyway. Ven- when you get to Venice, go to the main plaza, it said, and you'll find the people you need to take you to North Africa or Turkey. They'll be there, you don't, you'll see them, because um, nobody's hiding anymore. You are listening to The Othello Project created by English
0: Touring Theatre, with support from Amal, a project of the Said Foundation. To keep up to date with ETT's work, visit www.ett.org.uk and sign up to their mailing list. Upcoming shows include Rules for Living by Sam Holcroft and The Weir by Connor McPherson, touring UK venues this autumn. And now for the conclusion of our podcast. It's it's, it's fascinating, especially when when we compare. I, I guess I guess in comparison, it must have been it must have seemed like Venice was incredib- incredibly cosmopolitan and 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 diverse because, of course, trade was active. In, in Mediterranean trade was very active. There were ships coming up from North Africa, and, and there was those was trade that was going on even while. There was a lot of conflict and wars and, and imperial rivalries. And, and I guess, you know, there would have been a visible Jewish presence in Venice in terms of the establishment of the Venetian ghetto and the fact that the Jews worked outside of the ghetto walls, at least during daylight hours. And, and I guess you would have seen um, merchant mariners and and seafaring men. Uh, from from what we would term now generally as the Muslim world, because they were coming to trade, even though they also, after hours, would have been seconded to to a certain part of part of the town. I mean, in comparison to 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 Spain, this must have seemed like a, like a, a, yeah,
1: downright game changer if, if if you if you were able to make it there. Yeah, well, especially to Moriscos who'd actually been you know driven out of their own homes. Um, I mean and you know if you think of the actual process by which the expulsion happened you know like in in the first phase in Valencia in September 1609 the king basically just said you have three days to get ready to leave Um, and uh, most of the the, he they laid the groundwork throughout the summer by putting bringing in ships near the Valencian coast near it and so but they did amazingly well at keeping the whole thing secret so when this um, order was made public by town criers up and down Valencia um, that people were told go back to your houses prepare to leave wait for three days and the king's officials and militia will come and take you down to the coast I mean if you think what it's like now say to leave a country like Syria or Iraq you know there people can know what countries they're going to they can you know it's not going to be easy obviously we've seen we know that from the experience of the last few years but you leave with a certain amount of knowledge of where you might go or where you can try to go but then um, you had people who had no clue where they were going. They might just be in some remote village in the mountains of Valencia. They probably barely even knew who the king of Spain was, and had no contact with his, any of his officials ever. And suddenly, this order comes in: you have to leave your home where your, your family have lived for for years, forever, and you have to go down to the coast to go to a place where you don't even know where it is. And then they would just be dumped on the beaches um, and quite often killed initially. Uh, particularly in certain parts of uh, of Morocco and Tunisia, there were various tribes there that thought they were Christians, and basically just robbed them um, and attacked them and sometimes killed them there and then. Once some uh, Muslim rulers in Tunis and Algiers began to realize what was going on, they took steps to help them, but that didn't happen immediately. You know, so obviously, if you're going through that process and know the kind of risks that are that, that are surrounding you, and then you Venice must have seemed almost like a kind of. Uh, uh, a safe haven in comparison. There
0: must be a great follow-up book to this, Matthew, which which describes some of those stories of what happened after people had left and where they settled and, and what l- the lives of those people looked like. I mean, what sure. a
1: what a fascinating For sure, story it, that would tell. It would, but Cervantes has already written it. Oh, okay. And uh, I don't put myself in the same league <laughs> as Cervantes. Thank you very much. But he has the character Ricote, who Don Quixote meets, uh, I think in part two of, of Don Quixote, who is the return Morisco. Uh, interestingly, Cervantes, uh, the, whole concept, the whole way Cervantes dealt with um, um, Moors and Moorishness is a fascinating subject in itself mm. in Don Quixote. After all, he finds the... Don't forget, Don Quixote is an Aljamiado manuscript, which, he, which, um, which the narrator claims to have found in a market in Toledo, Toledo, the great capital of Visigothic uh, Spain and so on. And Ricote is the Morisco um, the who left and comes back and Don Quixote meets him. And according to Cervantes, Ricote was quite agreed with the expulsion order, even though he's a morisco himself. That's what Cervantes thinks. And in another story, the dialogue of the dogs, um, Cervantes is very, very anti-morisco. It's a really quite a bigoted text, actually. There's a, the portrait of moriscos there is nothing. They're selfish, they're misers, they're breeding too many too moriscos, many they're going to take over Spain, and so on and so forth. And yet in Don Quixote, it's much more nuanced. Than that kind of like rather straight down the line Christian bigotry of the time. I, 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 as, as we sort of wrap up, uh, Matthew, I wanted, I wanted to quote
0: something that that you uh, that you say in the in the preface to this second edition, which which which, which struck me. I, you say I, I wanted to tell the story of the expulsion to readers who may not have heard of it and do as much justice to its complexity as a non-specialist could. At the same time, I wanted to consider what lessons, if any, the tragedy of the Moriscos might offer to a new century, dominated by bitter, acrimonious, and often bigoted debates about the relative benefits and disadvantages of immigration and multiculturalism, including the role of minorities and Muslim minorities, Muslim minorities in particular, i mean I, I i won't lie i I mean in this conversation that that we've been having, which has been incredibly rich and, and I, I thank you for that um, I, I gotta say right right at the front of my mind is is how resonant everything that you have said feels right this moment mm. um, in terms of the political debates in terms of the ways in which people cope with difference, but also the ways in which marginalized people fight and resist to maintain their own sense of sense of identity and and, and how people find new homes and how structures of power and empire um, often are so confused about the way they ought to engage with with, with the with with the other i mean everything that you 've talked about, even though it belongs to a different time, an imperial time. Uh, Um, uh, A time when faith had a different kind of importance as a a political, social, and and economic tool. That having been said, this feels like a book and a story for right
1: now. Well, I mean, I, th- that's how I imagined it myself, and it's a certain freedom you have. if you're not, Historians tend not to like that kind of thing. They don't like, uh, historians tend not to like this drawing lessons from history, and they're right to be suspicious of it, because history is history, and uh, it could sometimes be a bit arbitrary to simply pluck some period and say it applies to this one. Nevertheless, not being a historian, but being a writer who writes about history, that gives me the freedom to do that. At least I took it like that, anyway. I'm and, glad you did. <laughs> and there are times when you just simply cannot help but notice... Um, the parallels, certain parallels, you know, and the parallels are kind of, they're odd parallels, for example. I mean, for example, um, one that instantly comes to mind is what you're dealing with to some extent today, and what you were dealing with then is the way a Christian society, nowadays we wouldn't define ourselves as such, that kicks around in the background of the kind of way we talk about Islam in Europe, um, deals with the ancestral enemy, the idea that Islam is the ancestral enemy. um, And the way you fight it defines you as a nation, as a community, or in in some cases as a continent, as as we see now. So there's that kind of broader framework. There's also um, particular um, dynamics about the whole process of forced assimilation, the way um, a majority constructs an enemy and then terrifies itself. With the, um, with the with the with uh, uh, essentially negative image of that enemy, Islamic in this case, but it could also apply to other minorities. It just happens to be Muslims right now because that is what is happening. We're seeing a kind of overlap in the representation of Islam as being something religiously, culturally, and politically antithetical to us. This imagined us in the first person plural, and also a security threat and a fifth column at the same time. Very much the way the Inquisition saw it in their own terms in 16th century Spain. And then once that dynamic is in place, then any sign of cultural difference can easily be interpreted as a sign of sedition. In our case now, terrorism it would be interpreted as. Um, Then there's a certain fixation on certain um, particular Islamic things that are supposedly um, defined this otherness, one of them being female dress codes. Um, In the 16th century, um, Spanish clerics obsessed about female dress codes for very different reasons to now... Um, Because in the 16th century, um, Spanish clerics thought that women were covering their faces in order to have sexual and romantic liaisons. And they thought that's why they were doing it. It was because of the promiscuity of Muslims as opposed to the celibacy of Christians. That's how they saw it. Um, And so um, they would often introduce punishments, exile, floggings, fines. They were constantly introducing one penalty after another to try to stop morisco women from wearing the al-Malafa, the equivalent of the niqab. And also a lot of Christian women wore it. And this is another thing they didn't like. They thought it was influencing Christian women to have sexual or romantic liaisons that they shouldn't be having. They thought you should show your face in the street. Um, and that's how you could see honesty, uh, virtue, and so on. So now, on the other hand, it's interpreted very differently. <laughs> Nevertheless, you've, you're arriving in a very similar place. Prohibitions, bans, um, and so on. Obviously, the punishments are not... And this is why this comparison can't be overstated. You know What we're seeing in Europe, we don't see the Inquisition. We have perhaps... The beginnings of an inquisitorial mentality, but in terms of the scale of punishments and uh, the level of repression, we're nowhere near what was happening. In fact, you know, uh, you could just as easily say that Islamic State, for example, behaves much more like the Inquisition behaved, even using the, some of the same punishments sometimes. And sometimes the same language. And the same language, exactly. Yeah. So. So yeah, so these parallels um, are clear, and I think uh, I thought it was worth mentioning them yeah. in that book. And I think I think there's there's a kind of a danger, isn't there, about
0: the inquisitorial impulse? Yeah, there is. And and the fact that the inquisitorial impulse is not something that is only the domain of the of the religious; it's also the domain of of of, of secular societies. It's it's in a way a function of power, isn't it? And and so much of 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 what you describe in 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 these pages is is about power and about control and, and, and how that power and control is executed over, over a group of people who clearly, for the period that you described, 1492 to 1614, are under incredible duress.
1: Yeah, yeah, because I think power is exactly right, and power used in the service of constructing a certain kind of identity in which, by exaggerating the level of threat that you supposedly face from this particular group, in, that, in this case, the Moriscos, you actually end up converting what is really a defenceless, a mostly defenceless minority. Because that's another thing is, for all the things the Inquisition said about the Moriscos, the dangers they, they represented, the threat they posed, they were for the most part unarmed, defenceless, with very few resources, and were actually a marginal threat to Christian Spain. You couldn't even call them a collective threat because there were so many divisions within them. There were some who were hostile, to um christian spain their hostility was sometimes caused by the repression directed against them had spain adopted a different position they might not have done that but they what happened was spain was saying to them uh, you must do what we say but you can't leave if spain for example had allowed some to leave the ones that really couldn't stand um, their new morisco identities some of them would have left and then they could have, like, um, turned off the pressure cooker, so to speak. You know, but basically Spain locked itself into a situation in which none of this was possible. And therefore, it became to seem inevitable that you'd take these extreme remedies like expulsion or massacre and so on. Um, we're a long way from that in Europe right now. But I nevertheless insist and insisted in that book that we're seeing the potential of a long road that could lead in that direction we unless saw, we find eth- alternatives. We saw ethnic cleansing
0: in Bosnia well, yeah, in, in, in our lives and that... And that um that exploded the sense that that we had um, that that we had civilizationally in inverted commas, overcome that impulse.
1: Yeah, in so periods of social crisis, certain dynamics can come to the forefront that people would not have thought possible even a few years or months before. Um, and you know, Spain to some extent fits that paradigm. Therefore, I think that those parallels are worth uh, in, in, insisting on. Uh, Matthew, you've you've uh, you've given us a. An,
0: an amazingly rich, nuanced, complex, cautionary tale, and uh, I, I think we're all the uh, we're all the better and wiser for you having done this work. So I want to thank you for the book, and I want to thank you for um, a really great conversation. Thank
1: you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to the Othello Project, created by English Touring Theatre with support from Amal a project of the Said Foundation. Special thanks this week to our guest, Matthew Carr. His book, Blood and Faith, The Purging of Muslim Spain, 1492 to 1614, has been heaped with accolades and critical acclaim. It's now in its second edition. If this conversation is any indication, it's a book that you ought to go out and buy, read, digest, and allow yourself to imagine Uh, what it must have been like uh, to have lived during that time and have fought to protect your identity, your culture, and your past. Uh, Matthew is an incredibly gifted storyteller, uh, a gifted journalist, and he's made these historical um, narratives relevant, certainly for me. Special thanks also to Ellie Isherwood for recording and sound design, and to the incredible team at ETT for pulling this all together. Othello runs at Wilton's Music Hall London until the 3rd of June. Tickets are still available for our final shows from wiltons.org.uk. Book soon to avoid disappointment. I've been your host, Abdul Rahman Malik. All of our podcasts can be found on iTunes or your favorite Android podcast tool or by visiting www.ett.org.uk. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps promote the podcast and allows a greater number of potential listeners uh, to connect to it. Next week, in what is supposed to be our final episode, we're going to be bringing together a panel of incredible women to look at the importance and the meaning that Othello has for us today, particularly on the ground in our diverse multicultural and cosmopolitan communities here in Britain and abroad. Until then, thank you.